This is LBC from Global, leading Britain's conversation with Ian Collins. Uh, it's been inevitable, hasn't it, over the last uh, bunch of years that uh, the the term ISIS, um, in varying forms, it seems, it feels, IS, ISIS, uh, Daesh is often David Cameron in this country. We should call them that. Uh, we'll get to all of this nitty-gritty in a few moments as to what, what it all means and specific titles, etc. But, of course, because of the nature of the world we currently live in, uh, ISIS are never far from the news agenda. Um, terror attacks are sadly um, all too common. And uh, in mainland Europe, um, we've seen over the last couple of years some horror stories, literally some horror stories. Just this year alone in this country, three terror attacks just over a couple of weeks, resulting in multiple loss of life. And who is the name that crops up every time? ISIS claim responsibility. Is that a specific group that have a headquarters somewhere? Are they standing there wheeling out a press release in the conventional sense? Is it individuals that subscribe to an ISIS ideology and therefore anyone that does something under the banner of that ideology are therefore, well, representing ISIS? Does that mean every attack is directed by the higher echelons of those in the, uh, the organisation? Is there an army as such? Do they have vehicles? Is there a fleet, a headquarters? Could you email them if you needed to? Uh, these are all the questions that we just sort of gloss over, really. We say, oh, it's ISIS. Yes, ISIS are responsible for that. Uh, but where do they specifically come from? What are they all about? What is the current agenda? And where are they going? What is the end game? I think that is perhaps the most interesting thing. In a second, we'll speak to Chris Sampson, who's about as geared up on the um, area of ISIS as anybody could be, lead researcher, um, author, um, into all of this area of, of ISIS and also lead researcher at Tapestry which is a defence research institute dedicated to studying intelligence on the tactics and belief systems of radicalised extreme organisations throughout the world so if you've got a question you want to put to Chris 0345 6060973 anything ISIS related uh, whatever it happens to be uh, from pre specific previous stories uh, that we're all too familiar with, their inclusion within it, uh, where they're currently at, uh, and perhaps more poignantly, uh, what they want, what they actually want. 0345 6060973. Uh, let's speak with Chris Sampson. Chris, good evening to you, sir. Uh, good evening, Ian. Nice to have good you with us again. Let me join you. No, it's a pleasure. Gr great to have you on. The last time we spoke uh, more briefly, um, but after you were on, we had so many questions and uh, different bits and pieces that people wanted to ask about uh, that we thought, well, we have to get you back on and have a chat. And uh, oh, this okay. is this is clearly your territory. So, I mean, let's just start with the basics here. Um, I, I mentioned there, as everybody will be familiar, uh, that if you did a Google News search for ISIS, you'd be met with about 75 million results. Results, of course, because they are they are there every day in some capacity in the news networks. But what I do know is that when I was a kid, they definitely weren't there. So where did they come from? Well, it's an evolution of uh, what we would consider to be a splinter off of the group Al Qaeda, which formed after the invasion of Iraq. 
because the first group that came out of Iraq uh, was known as AQI or, you know, the ISIS uh, um, precursor, which was still uh, identified itself as an al-Qaeda group. And it was headed by um, a man that was uh, known as Abu uh, Musab al-Zarqawi. And he was the founder of a group that was called Tahwid wal-Jihad, or Monotheism and Jihad. And he's a Jordanian who, after the invasion of Iraq, came into Iraq, basically started to assemble fighters, and, and foreign fighters were coming in. And it was, again, for a couple of years, it was known as AQI. Well, he was killed in June, uh, June 6, 2006, by coalition forces. And in October of that year, other groups came back together, uh, the Mujahideen Council and other uh, splinter groups, uh, or AQI's uh, leadership, and uh, formed the first form of that word that we're thinking of as uh, the Islamic State. It was the Islamic State in Iraq, or ISI. And it, it's, it's a diplomatic, uh, it's a, a um, bureaucratic organization in that it does have a Shura Council, it has various leaderships, and it's, um, uh, it tries to claim that its way of doing so is done under, uh, done under Quranic law. Uh, there's no evidence of that per se. But it has maintained that bureaucratic uh, styling from those days until now. Now, it remained under ISI until about 2010, when again it started to rebrand. And there's a, there's a kind of a tie-in between the reformations and the offing of their leaders, so just like we had the death of um, uh, Zarqawi in 2006, a new leader was established after that, um, and he was an Egyptian, um, and we had that leader for a while. But it, again, there was really no footprint in the in the country because they were sort of reactionary force to American coalition and against the uh, Shia militias, right? Mm -hmm. But Syria was still essentially a stable country. And the deterioration in Syria has a lot to do with what eventually became ISIS as well. So as we started to see the conditions in Iraq change, uh, especially towards 2007, 2010, you know, they didn't get the same footprint there, and they began to migrate over the border into Syria. Well, as we know, Syria has been in a bloody civil war for quite a while now. Um, the members that would become part of ISIS were aligned with a group named Jabhat al-Nusra at the time, which is, you know, basically, they've rebranded since then, but they're an offshoot of al-Qaeda in Syria. And there was this fissure between those two groups, largely along the lines that kind of helps us typify what makes ISIS sort of distinct, which is that they have this very hardcore absolutism about their view. Whereas, you know, um, al-Qaeda under both bin Laden and um, uh, uh, of uh Zawahri, you know, they're, they like to play it low. They, I, I often compare them to the, like, old mafia or, you know, the old, you know, gang, you know, gangsters versus young gangsters that don't have a deeper wisdom and vision, you know. They know not to play their cards too heavy. So they, for instance, had the idea that you shouldn't have a caliphate. That shouldn't come until the plurality of their vision was so universal that it would be easy to have a caliphate. But the ISIS guys were not like that. They wanted something now. They wanted action now. And that mentality is something that has persisted to this day. So with the falling of the um, – uh, through the civil war in Syria, the falling of any kind of control under 
uh, Bashar al-Assad, now you had two fertile grounds, okay? You had Syria in the, in the beginning of a disaster, uh, of, of, you know, of ma- mass genocide, if you will. And then on the other side, you had what was happening under al-Maliki. Al-Maliki had created a sectarian government that, in light of what had happened under the Ba'athists, were not bringing people to the table that were Sunni. And that included all the people that you know, were in the Anbar region or up in the Nineveh region, you know, around Mosul. And when you start excluding people from the political process, they're going to react some way. So if you go back just a few years, in 2013 or so, you had protests mm-hmm. in, in the Anbar region where they were, you know, essentially not going to stand for what uh, was happening under the Shia leadership. And that's really the fuel for the ISIS burst within Iraq within Syria, or frankly, within London or Belgium or somewhere else, is when you don't have a political voice and you have no way to vet that. But then someone else comes along and says, hey, we'll work with you. Sure. So you, you have a cinder pot right there, you know. Uh, and it, so we, we came out of the ISL. Uh, you may remember ISIL, and you hear these different yeah, people yeah. discussing what to call it. Well, that was, again, another rebranding, okay? We have now, since then, had, we had a new uh, leader come that was before al-Baghdadi, and that brand, you know, changed it to ISIL or, or, you know, Islamic State in the Levant. And then eventually they changed it one more time to the ISIS uh, that we know now, the Islamic State in Al-Sham. And, uh, and, and also to clarify, the Daesh. Daesh is a uh, is the Arabic acronym, you know, Dalat. Uh, I'd have to look at the name uh, written out. But basically it's the same, it's same form, just it's a, an anagram. And... But it just happens to be an anagram that happens to have the overtone of stem, you know, being trampled under feet. So yeah. Right. Well, our, our former Prime Minister David yeah. Cameron ma- made the point that they should be called Daesh because apparently they don't like being called Daesh. Is that true? Um, they don't like being called those things. But it's sort of you have to understand what it is that they don't, why they don't like being called. Because then when she started just the name calling level. Then it's they, they too will blow you off. They're not interested. If you yeah. call them like Khawarij, okay, so Khawarij um, would be the outsiders, okay. And during uh, Muhammad's time, he warned about extremists. He said very explicitly that there would be people who would not understand his message and would go to extremes. And the first ones that did this, and this is very important to understand the significance of the Khawarij and uh, what we have with ISIS is that they were the ones who split the religion in two. It took just basically nine people to, to assassinate one person and split the religion permanently in two, or at least up until today, uh, in two. And, and it didn't take an army, you know. It took a small cadre of people who were so intent on their view that they were willing to assassinate somebody to get it. And if that isn't sort of a precursor to where we are at now, we have now had five of these groups. Uh, the Utebists and some other groups along the history between, you know, 600 and now have had the same sort of uh, cult-level uh, apocalyptic view, if you will, to seize the entire Ummah or the Muslim body and control it with this very strong absolutist view that is a precursor to what ISIS is. So when you call them Khawarij, they really don't like that. But sure. it's not like a Daesh name, you know, where you're giving okay. an organization you're labeling them as outsiders, which well, is slightly uh, different than apostates. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, on that on that point, Chris, uh, Mike in Swansea Please. emails and says, "Can you tell me how big ISIS is? Uh, do we know uh, how many people belong to it? Is there any way of gauging those numbers?" 
Well, one way that we currently do it is to try to enumerate the amount of foreign fighters who have left various countries and, and, and who have uh, been identified by the intelligence agencies. And to be honest, I'd have to look at the fresh numbers. I know at one point just a couple of years ago, the total estimate was around 30,000, and a lot of those were people who had actually traveled to Syria hmm. and, and Iraq to fight. But as you can tell, I mean, they have lost massive ground and many, many fighters. And the ability to recruit has been hindered because, one, you have um, more awareness within the intelligence agencies and the governments at, at home. And then the footprint available in Syria and Iraq has been devastated. You know, they, they still are active in uh, Iraq. Some people keep saying since they lost uh, Mosul that that would be the end of them. But they've migrated into Kirkuk. They're also still in Anbar. And they still have some sympathy within the population, again, because of what I said before, the sectarian politics of Iraq. Same thing with when it comes to Syria. There are still small footprints. We haven't you know, really thrown them out of Raqqa, uh, but they've suffered a major setback. So where, where are they now then? In many ways, Malcolm Nance, who I work with and co-write these books with, and, uh, and I did research with him on uh, defeating ISIS, um, we refer to it as the ghost caliphate, meaning that they will now drift into the online sector where they will seek to continue to recruit people based on the ideology using the Internet. Chris, stay there for one second, sir. We'll be back with you in just a couple of moments, and we'll, we'll expand into that as well. Um, if you've got a question, text us 84850. Chris Sampson, lead researcher at Tapestry, co-author of Hacking ISIS, uh, lead researcher on how to def- on defeating ISIS as well. We'll talk some more to Chris in a second. If you want to put a question to him about any aspects of... Uh, their past, the present operations. Uh, are you sensing from what Chris has said there uh, that this kind of chimes with the image, a sense of damaging and lethal, yes, but perhaps diminishing in terms of numbers, possibly? Is that a reassuring thought? The online element, uh, your calls and thoughts, uh, text 84850. You can email us via the website, lbc.co.uk, or, of course, you can call 0345 973. Late Nights with Ian Collins on LBC. Call 0345 973. 03456060973 is where you'll find us. Uh, we'll talk some more to Chris Sampson in just a second on that issue of, uh, well, it's about ISIS. And I, I guess the kind of, I, I don't want to say the beginner's guide to, uh, that, that does in some way sound crass and insensitive, but it's, this is very much about uh, just perhaps getting that extra bit of information that we don't often, uh, from time to time, Uh, When we read a story that ISIS are responsible for this or ISIS are encroaching there or ISIS have been wiped out of that particular region. And we read so many headlines that are based around the word ISIS. Uh, But how much do we really know about who ISIS are and what they really want and where they're going? And I suppose the end game. Uh, which, of course, is crucial to all. I've got lots of uh, questions on exactly that, so I'll come to those with Chris in just a second. But isn't it rather interesting that you can fill a news agenda with half a dozen stories on a daily basis that involve ISIS doing this, that or the other uh, without most of us knowing very much about them? Uh, that's a little catastrophic, really. 0345 which is why we invited Chris Sampson, 
to join us. Chris is lead researcher at Tapestry. Uh, they're an institute, defence institute, dedicated to studying intelligence on the tactics, if you like, and belief systems of extremist organisations throughout the world. If you want to put a question to Chris, 03456060973. You can email enc at lbc.co.uk or text 84850. Chris, just before we get back to... You you began to touch on the issue of the the online um, area of ISIS and, and, and perhaps the journey they're likely to go on. Let me just bring you a point from Lisa in Manchester... Um, who emailed and said, we often hear that ISIS was the product of the West, created by the West. What is the truth in this? It is often said, isn't it, that um, I suppose often critics of Western governments, particularly America and the United Kingdom, will often cite in in a kind of a, well, it's your own fault type way, uh, will often cite us being responsible for their creation. What's the truth of that? Well, first, let's knock down one that's a conspiracy theory that is commonly run around in different people that essentially it's a direct creation. In other words, that the CIA or someone else went into Syria and created this group. Those are those those types of thoughts are unfounded by any facts. And in fact, they're incongruent with known facts that are a little easier to identify, but still lay some blame on the West when it comes to what happened in Iraq in 2003. If if we had not toppled that country, and more importantly, if we had not disbanded the army and all those additional things that were catastrophic decisions, very likely we wouldn't have this group to deal with like this. We'd still have terrorists, you know, and we would still have groups like al-Qaeda. But by toppling the government, we certainly created a fertile ground. But the rumors of things like, you know, weapons into Syria to create this group, hmm. there's, there's no facts that are, you know, basing on that. And as I try to tell people when it comes to dealing with conspiracy thoughts, even if I created some new theory, I have to also disprove the positive evidence of other known theories. For instance, like I, the history I just laid out to you, my knowledge of that has to do a lot with also reading endless amounts of ISIS materials where they really document out what they do. They're, sure. they're a remarkably bureaucratic organization who spends a lot of time documenting what they do internally. So you have this, con- you know, they have this continuity of documentation from the beginning until now. That once you put those things in order, that's really where the history, you know, is very well developed. So, so it would so be. It, so, you say consequentially, yeah. it was created by the West. Consequentially, I mean, uh, you know, I hate to throw that on the, on the table too, too flippantly, but I think there's at least a little bit of a seed to that notion. But but in but the sense that they are the enemy, I guess that stands to reason, doesn't it? Say it again? In, in the sense that they are seen as the enemy. I mean, it's, it's just logical that um, yeah. you, you could argue any well, enemy is created grievance. by the, the opposition right. in that respect. And they, cre- they, they feed off the grievance of having interference from the West and off the, the dictatorial regimes that they're also railing against sure. um, that are part of the bureaucracy that they see that they're fighting, you know. Um, and they, you know, they have terms for these people. So it's... Um, you know, they don't see, let's see, not just Bashar al-Assad, but, you know, the leaders of uh, of Egypt or Algeria or the king of Morocco. You know, they, they see that these people are um, tools of the Kufar, tools of the West. And so they rail, and a lot of the rhetoric, they rail against that sort of uh, 
idea to recruit the disenfranchised, and especially those people who would love to rail against any dictator they live under. So in terms of, uh, you, you mentioned the size, maybe 30,000 people, difficult to tell. Uh, much of this, as, as you say, Chris, is, it has to be sort of deduced from people we know that have left other countries, often Western countries, right. even in the UK. We're aware of people leaving here to go there to fight for those guys. I mean, how, how does that journey begin? How on, you know, We had three young girls from the east end of London. I'm sure, yeah, you're, familiar, yeah, I'm right. sure you're familiar with the story. How, how on earth would they have found themselves in a place to even know where to okay. go, what to do? Well, a couple of things. Let me throw something about the numbers real quick, uh, an additional qualifier. Um, when I look at channels that they run on Telegram, which is a messaging app, but it also allowed, as of September 2015, the invention of groups or channels so that you can have a consistent dialogue with more than one people. The population of those channels still only often number in the several hundreds and in the low, below 2000s. So it's not uncommon for me to find an ISIS channel that's been around for a while that really doesn't tick above 1,200 people, which is pretty good news. It's not great news. We don't want 1,200 people, but that's a lot better than 30,000, mm. right? So when I look at those those metrics, I and, and it's hard to tell like if I find a website forum exactly who's all involved in there. But it is a little easier with the Telegram channels to get an idea of some of the online population's interests. Um, for instance, you know, post Manchester attack or something like that, our crew will watch all those channels to see what they're saying, what the chatter is. And one of the things I've always noted was, you know, how many people are really paying attention to this, or even more important. How many of those numbers are intelligence agencies or other analysts? You know, <laughs> you don't know, you know. Sure. So it's at least below 1,200, below 1,000 often. And the only channels that will tick really above them are more mainstream uh, Muslim channels that are, you know, or Arab uh, news channels. And so the population in that area is low. Now back to the recruiting. The recruiting happens in a, a range of ways, but the most common is, you know, you have a combination of disaffected people, meaning someone who either by nature or by environment around them, they're isolated. Maybe they don't fit well in school. Maybe they don't fit well in their community. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't have the abundance of resources. It just means that their emotional state is one that is isolated in some way. They don't, they're not integrated into society very well. That person is looking for a connection with someone. And when they find someone, that if it's a person who's not ISIS and a good person who's going to educate you on whatever it is you want to know, whether it be um, you know something about Islam or let's flip the coin a little bit, maybe it's something about being a Nazi, like what we're having here in the United States, where we're having this rise in white supremacists. You know, it's the same recruiting tactic. You have someone who's looking to join a community, and when that community embraces you. They can fill you with whatever ideology they really please, and so sure. long as you're a, a, an open vessel for that, you're in. So but there's, there's the a world of difference, of course. There's a world of difference, Chris, between you know knowing where the local clan HQ might be, and being able right. as a 14 year old to make your way to the uh, inner depths of um, Syria via Turkey, and uh, right. that that perilous journey that that involves. That that does seem to well, be like, slightly more right, convoluted. Like mentioned, I'm sorry, but like the three ladies you mentioned as an example, right? Yeah. If I sell you a romantic notion of a great battle, a romantic notion of a hero, you know, then, and if you buy that, 
then you're willing to make that hero's journey because on, in your new way of looking at the world, I have spurred you to action. And what has happened, very unfortunately, because I still have sympathy for people who make wrong choices, we have had people who have left countries only to arrive there and find that they're digging latrines. Or if it's a young lady, she finds that she's a, a passed-around bride whose husband just got killed, and now she's in who knows who's hands. Or, even worse, the person you thought you were going to meet never existed in the first place. Sure. And do and you, set, a, do a you sense there's quite a lot of like that? that. You, you sense that's well, quite a, a common story. Out of India, for instance, that had, yeah, that story is very common now. A young man out of India went there thinking he was going to find his perfect bride, and once he got there, he found that there was sort of an internal racism that left him digging latrines, and he actually was willing to turn himself into the authorities just to go back home. Wow. And that's a, that is the reality faced on the ground. And we need to make sure people understand that. Yeah. Because one of the most interesting parts of this phenomenon is to study the people who have left and they come back with their disenchanted stories and researchers I get to work with and colleagues in our field. We're, I think we're very fascinated with those stories because that's where we get the real insight. But that's true. But if you, if you are recruited in that respect, in fact, I'll tell you what, Chris, just because we're going to take some news headlines, stay there. We'll come back with some more calls on this. But certainly that recruitment process is rather fascinating in terms of what that actually means. Where do you end up going to? Somebody takes you in a car. Is it a hut, a cave, an actual place, part of a town? We'll talk to Chris Sampson some more on this in a few moments. More of your questions. If you've emailed or texted in, we'll get through some more of those in a a second, 0345 um, It's a focus on ISIS. The headlines always, daily, daily, hourly, will mention them. But what do we actually know about what we've been told? Uh, certainly at the moment, the world's most well-known terror group. Uh, what is the truth behind that perception? Our lines are open. More from Chris in just a couple of moments. First, we get the news headlines from Paul Smith. Ian Collins on LBC. Uh, Chris Sampson, the uh, the author researcher, is with us on the issue of ISIS. We'll talk to Ronald in a second. He's got a question in just a moment. Chris, we were just talking there before the uh, news headlines about that recruitment process. People being taken to uh, one one is tempted to think you ultimately end up in Syria, but could that be Iraq? Where where, where are you likely to be taken if you've come from, for example, the UK? You've somehow joined up, radicalised online. Where do you go? Well, let's let's also look at the fact that the, the events have changed a bit since now Syria and Iraq are harder to get into. This is why you're starting to see more uh, change in the message, which is actually a recycled al-Qaeda message of do it at your own home with the simple tools. Because they are very clear that the intelligence agencies and, you know, um, you know immigration powers that be in you know, Europe, America, you know, Britain, etc., are more tuned in to try to look for someone, right? So the uh, attack at home, you know, react where you are message is now prevailing versus uh, making what's called hijra or leaving your community to come to fight in these countries. But before that, you know, yes, the invite would be come to Syria, come to fight in Iraq. And once you went there, you were basically checked in and redeployed based on your use. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this would include, again, you might be a fighter, or you might be a suicide bomber, or you might be a latrine digger. You know, it's it's hard to believe. Um, but once you get there, you, you don't really have a plan. But you did walk in with your hero notion, you know? You did sure. walk in with your romanticism. And that's one of the reasons why the disenchantment was so important. 
Uh, some, one other aspect that's very important to understand, let's get back to what is the overall agenda. Uh, ISIS wants to control the entire Muslim population. They want to subjugate them. They want to put them under their control. And if you look at some of the, the rhetorical um, campaigns that they've used at different times, they often do this big, massive guilt trip on Muslims. You're not being Muslim enough. You're not being pious enough. But, of course, the, by piety, they mean their version of piety, you know? So if you take a person who says, you know, I legitimately love my religion, I'm a Muslim, and I want to learn more about it, but then you get someone who comes around and says, but you know what, you're not being Muslim enough, you know? If that person is some sort of weak constitution mentally and emotionally, you know, maybe that'll work. For others, it doesn't. They're like, no, no, I'm good, you know? So, so that, you, that, you, that you whole would... leaning is very important. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get that. But you, you would take from that then, Chris, that the average Muslim, and I think we know this through the countless phone-ins we've done on this, uh, would have right. nothing to do with uh, what ISIS are up to. But there is a school of right. thought from from other Muslims and non-Muslims that ISIS are only in action, which kind of vaguely ties in with something we spoke about a moment ago, only in action right. because of bad foreign policy from uh, mainly the US and the UK. What's the truth in that? I don't. Th I don't think that's an easy sell, and only because you know the U.S. and the U.K. are only part of the earth. You still have whatever's going on in those various countries. You know, you have still have failed policy in Egypt or you know Libya or Syria or Iraq, and those those alone are pretty problematic anyway. Hmm. So you have messages within those centers. You know, I call it sort of you know uh, a geocentric view that starts somewhere outside of the you know the European or American point of reference you know so if you're in if you're aiming your message at the caucasus you know at the chechens then you're not trying to speak about what america does you're talking about what russia does you know sure and if you're doing the same thing in yemen you may be talking about the saudis you know and you may be talking about the the influence of the shia and you're very little discussion at that point might have anything to do with the west so this is why i'm saying that the subjugation of the entire ummah is very important now, let me be an outsider on the whole thing. You know, I really don't personally subscribe to a religion. I do data. And data is very interesting in the sense that the numbers clearly show that the Muslim population of the earth, 1.6 billion people, are very easy to get along with by the numbers. Because if, I actually did this in a pie chart once where I took all of the groups that would be described as Islamic uh, in nature or Islamist in nature and uh, from Asahab, you know, uh, I mean, from uh, Al-Shabaab in uh, Somalia to the Katani group or, you know, Abu Sayyaf out in the Philippines. And I put all of them in a big pie chart. And I, blew, I actually inflated the numbers to the highest number. So all the numbers I got from the intelligence agencies, I actually rounded up to the next 10,000 or something to give them a little bit more fluff. And then I actually reduced the numbers of the entire Muslim population to 1.5 billion. And yet it still only made a slice so thin it didn't even make up 1%. And so that's very important to understand because sure. the messaging in ISIS is two other Muslims towards the kuffar or the disbelievers. But it's looking for an, an end goal. And that end goal actually passed recently. They're looking for a big showdown. And if you remember, some people might know that there was a magazine that they had called Dabik which is a town in Syria, northern Syria. And they were expecting this big, it's like the equivalent of uh, Armageddon or Megiddo, you know. We're going to have this big showdown in the end of times, and this apocalyptic death cult view was very tangible. And then all of a sudden, Dabik was no longer an issue because they lost the terrain. 
immediately they rebranded their magazine to Romia or Rome. <laughs> well, why? Well, because now they had to shift their narrative again. Yeah. And see, that's really where we're going to start seeing a change if we want to really confront these guys and, cha- and, and destroy their organization. We have to change the narrative, which first means we have to understand the narrative, and that's still where the West is lacking. Let me take a call here. Chris, um, this is Ronald in Romford. Ron, good evening to you, sir. Uh, good evening. Hi, you got a question for Chris. Yeah, um, basically, um, I've always felt that... Um, the removal of Saddam Hussein and Colonel Gaddafi, uh, in my view, has fueled the product of ISIS and um, has segregated those uh, countries mm-hmm. by having different factions fighting each other now, yeah. where before there was a stability in those regions. It's in, let me put that to Chris, because it, t- t- it touches, Chris, on something we talked about in terms of uh, Western intervention and the like. It's often said that Iraq being, you know, an obvious example, it, it might have had some nefarious goings on in terms of its leadership, but it was curiously sort of organised. And then we pitch up, start bombing the place, and ISIS suddenly are fuelled. What, what's the truth in right. that? Well, actually, let's use both of those countries because there's a strange uh, similarity in there. Uh, let's move to Libya as an example. We'll go back to Iraq because you'll yep. see the model again. So Gaddafi is overthrown post-Arab Spring. And I know for a fact that the U.S. gave a security plan to the interim government of Libya. The interim government was basically given this, this order of, of things to do. Number one, you want to... Um, secure your country. This means not to disband your army, the available army, not to disband the available police forces, and to make sure that that aspect was secure. Two, you wanted to make sure you can, you uh, secure the uh, reservoir of, uh, of electricity and other resources so that the country could remain operational. And in the bases, for instance, where military equipment would be held, and then further down the line would be bringing in your tribal leaders in order to develop a coalition government. Well, what did they wind up doing, though? Well, they said, well, we have to go talk to the tribal leaders first. And by that point, since they hadn't done the previous stuff, which would secure the country, they lost control of their country, and it became a, a huge mess in Libya. Now, go back to Iraq. What happened after the toppling of uh, Saddam Hussein? We disbanded the military. We disbanded the police force because we didn't want to face them, right? And that was a cat- catastrophic situation. And the last part is we allowed, by not confronting Maliki, we allowed a sectarian government that was the opposite of what had been there to take over where the Shia were uh, blocking out the sea. Uh, and if you know anything about these two countries in particular, they are a Western creation of sorts because Libya has three provinces that do not relate to each other essentially very well. And they're sort of drawn together. And as you said, they were held together under strongmen. Uh, now, the whatever the natural order is also asserting itself. The tribal's you know differences are very very strong, and the sense of a national unity of we are Libya is very weak. Which means that a group like ISIS can come in with a stronger narrative. Remember, it's all about narrative, and they can give the narrative to a, a country that lacks its own internal narrative. Same thing is happening in in Iraq, where you, some people have talked about three state solution, which would be Sunni, Shia, and Kurds. Um, same thing that you look at with what's in Syria. You have a split between the Alawites, the Kurds, and the remaining population that may not want to have anything to do with uh, 
you know, Bashar al-Assad, including, you know, you might want to hear what the Druze would have to say. Sure. Uh, and until you get a narrative for these people to have a sense of a national identity, it's really going to remain a struggle. And it's your sense, Ronald, because you asked the question, that we kind of have, in, in, in one respect, which is the point I put to Chris, we, we've kind of sort of partly created this problem. Yeah, in my view, I mean, especially with Libya, I mean, you know, I know some people from that area and uh, personally, and they've spoken to me, and they said that it was a very rich country. And uh, because there were certain aspects that, um, that Colonel Gaddafi wouldn't give up, mm. he was pressured in releasing those assets, um, but then it all went wrong, and then, like, the war started. Yeah, I mean, is that, Chris, a, you know, we, we, we remember famously it was, um, you know, the, the British Prime Minister, the French, uh, of course, you know, getting that hero's reception in Libya after Gaddafi fell. Uh, it all looked so good. Right. And then it, then it sort of went a little sour very quickly, um, again, leaving a, a vacuum, which is usually the word that seems to be used, a power vacuum. True. Well, uh, it, again, they're different countries. So, you know, Saddam Hussein the best in my knowledge and, and research, there were really no terrorist organizations as we would think of them. Doesn't mean someone didn't come and go through the country, but there was no ground for them to stay because that would be detrimental to him. He would have been seen as, you know, an apostate to them. You know, he, he had a Quran written in his own blood, which is considered bidda or forbidden practice. You don't do that, you know. Mm -hmm. he was, he's uh, a dic typical dictator. Same thing with uh, Qaddafi. Qaddafi was not loved by any of them. But Qaddafi's a little different in the sense that he, I would say he had at least a penchant in the South to use terrorist organizations to his benefit. Um, you know, let's not forget Lockerbie Skyland, for instance. Um, you know, he had, he had the penchant for using those groups. So he's a little bit different beast. But let's move one more direction over to Egypt and look at the Muslim Brotherhood. What happened with the Muslim Brotherhood, or like Hamas, that is different than ISIS? Those groups wanted to buy into the politic, right? You, you start seeing them want to run for office. That means they've already basically decided they want to be part of the society at large. And this is good because that's a step away from the extremism that ISIS has that explicitly states that democracy is forbidden and, and, and complete anathema to what they stand for. So we have to – we in the West who want to deal with this have to understand those nuances so that when someone rails about the Muslim Brotherhood without seeing the evolution of that organization, same thing with Hamas, without seeing the evolution of that organization, um, that we have to see that, that strata because ISIS is still on the far end fold that it has no desire to have any sort of um, a democracy or, you know, the equivalent of a State Department or, you know, diplomacy sure. with others. You know, they have an absolutist view. And an absolutist view is, is hard to be compared to someone who's willing to negotiate. Chris, thank you. Uh, we'll be back with more from Chris in a second. Thank you to Ronald for raising that point. We'll talk to Joe in Croydon in just a moment too. Oh three four five six zero six zero nine seven three. Everything you needed to know, wanted to know uh, about ISIS, the story behind those headlines. Uh, we'll also talk a little about how they're funded as well, which is a question that's come in. And uh, let's we'll get a gauge from Chris as well about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, the international response to ISIS. And will Donald Trump make a difference? All of that's on its way on LBC.
Late Nights with Ian Collins on LBC. Uh, just before we talk to Joe, uh, our next caller on this, uh, just quickly on this one, Chris, because I'm aware of time. Chris Sampson's still with us. Uh, question here asks, how are ISIS funded? Uh, I'm sure there's a variety of answers, but uh, but broadly speaking, what, what's the, 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 the what, what do we question. know about this? Well, that's, that's a great question. I would, I would highly recommend a lot of you to go find... Um, you know, essentially my boss, if you will, Malcolm Nance, giving a hour-long plus uh, YouTube presentation that was a, well, it was, it was a panel he did uh, or a presentation he did about the financing that's very intricate, which will take more time than the radio has. However, you know, to give you a little bit of um, uh, idea, so there's, first off, stolen funds mm-hmm. from, from their gains in Syria and Iraq. There are some quiet funding, I'm sure, going on from, you know, parts of the world that are you know, sending money in. But a lot of it is the illegal activity, you know. Um, they're involved in everything from, you know, uh, trafficking of blood antiquities, as we call them, um, funneling of uh, cash from other, you know, criminal organizations and criminal exploits. Um, you'd have to look at every region, too. Every area is a little bit different. Um, but it's done oftentimes through, for instance, let's say you have, we've talked about recruits. If you have a person who wanted to come to fight, they have had money transferred via PayPal to people who have wanted to join or, or travel. They've had many uh, wired Western Union, um, or they've had the old system where money was essentially transferred through the, um, you know, through the organization where, like, I give you money. But it doesn't directly go from that from you to those people. You call someone else and say, "Hey, so and so is giving me this much money. Sure. Please give this much money to that person over there." Um, and you know, but the the theft is really a, a large part of it because the what's called um, uh, uh, jizya, which is taxation, uh, it, it's going to dry up when they don't have land to control. They're not going to be able to force the people that are under their physical domain to take money. But they were doing that when they had physical terrain. They were collecting jizya. They had offices about that. They had plenty of videos explaining, oh, you give us this money as taxation, and then we use these to, you know, have the water supply and a sense of normality towards the state. In fact, ISIS went out of its way several times in its propaganda to demonstrate itself as a very functioning state. That have, uh, took care of everything from your street lights to the water. To yeah, I, I remember that. Didn't they even have police right, cars with ISIS near, written right. on the side of them and things? Sure, yeah. And actually, all those are called what's called the Hizbah patrols or the, the punishment patrols who are making sure you're being a good Muslim. Of course. Um, to be, we'll talk to Joe in just a second. Here's a question from Julian who says, can you ask, uh, Chris, if ISIS are connected to Wahhabi Islam, if they are, why is the, uh, why the hell do we have anything to do with Saudi Arabia? Uh, the Saudi connection uh, is never far away, of course. Well, I, I'd have to say not exactly. In other words, is there a tangential connection? Sure, but really there are also Wahhabist groups that have not gone that direction, including the um, the loose founder, if you will, Zarqawi's uh, mentor, uh, who joined the Jabhat al-Nusra group. Um, and he, you know, these guys preach an extremism that you and I would probably find very far-fetched, you know, to, to buy into. But they're fairly moderate in some of their ways of looking at the world compared to ISIS. And that's important because not every Salafist wants to be like ISIS. Not every Wahhabist wants to be like ISIS. So from our view, they're extreme. But from ISIS's view, not so much. 
Uh, let's take a question from Joe in Croydon. Joe, evening to you. What are your uh, thoughts? Uh, hi, good evening. Um, just a question for your specialist. Uh, do you feel that mainstream media, have the, the way they've portrayed ISIS and almost clouded the difference with terminologies that they use, who's ISIS and, and mainstream Islam, the way they've connected the dots, the way it's portrayed, in turn, increasing Islamophobia. And second question, follow-on question, do you feel that would increase the probability of people joining ISIS due to feeling isolated? Right, so but there's that says, kind of sense of... No, I hear where you're coming from, Joe, that sense, Chris, that there's a, uh, a strange circle here. The media, I mean, obviously, areas like Fox News are often accused of this kind of thing, that uh, they're sure. inflaming things, and in fact, in the, the, the existence of the inflammatory comment, even the president himself... Uh, actually, is the best recruiting drive for ISIS. Yeah, no, that's this. You know, uh, my colleagues rail against those people who, you know, like Sebastian Gorka, who really exploit an idiocy about the whole argument. Uh, because for one, they lack many of them lack any kind of scholastic insight to what this group is about. They they sort of they they run this pseudo intellectual uh, rapport on their own followers that's meant to sell books and you know keep them busy making speeches mm. but the question is do you want to keep getting speeches and having income or do you want to defeat this organization frankly i don't care if anyone pays me again for a speech as long as we defeat this organization so if i live all the rest of the next several years behind a terminal you know simply focused on taking them down that's my mission that's the only thing i you know i'm doing this for um, so the Islamophobic point of view is actually, it's, it's the same coin, because the Muslims uh, are the victims of ISIS more numerically than anybody else. And the Islamophobic crowd is not understanding that. Now, I try to actually keep in mind what people are driven by when it comes to their rhetoric, including Islamophobics. Many people who buy into that notion are genuinely afraid of this concern, and I don't blame them for being afraid. The problem is they're fed wrong information to solve the problem. And the sad irony is that ISIS is very aware of their ignorance and plays upon it. And if you went to a person who believes in the Islamophobic rhetoric and ask, well, what do you want to achieve, and you listen to them, they essentially sort of want to achieve what you and I want to achieve. It's just that they're willing to shoot a far wider target, including innocent people, to get that met. So we have to educate them that, number one, we have the same uh, ultimate mission. We want to end violence and we want to end these attacks that have happened in your country, in my country, in Europe, etc. But we have to do it wisely because, as, as Joe was just saying, the alienation is exactly the fertile ground for the recruitment. And if we keep isolating people or keep running these policy positions where we're forcing people to go further into hiding, hiding number one, which is really bad, or we're telling them you're not one of us, especially let's say that we're born there. You know, a lot of the guys like um, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, uh, the guy who uh, was killed in Syria years ago, the hacker uh, trick, um, he um, he was born in Birmingham, you know. He's, yeah. He was a, a, a computer kid. Sure. And he didn't fit in. Well, what would happen if he just was so fit in with the society that if the rhetoric came to him, hey, they don't like you, and he looks around and goes, what do you mean everyone likes me? Let me just uh, let me just cut in there, Chris, because we are hitting the clock. Joe, thank you for your call. Can I just ask you a question? We've only got 10 seconds, Chris, but five years from now, where do you think ISIS will be? 
uh, without physical territory, except for in small broken areas. Again, like now they're seeing an insurgency in uh, uh, Philippines. So if we ro- rob them of any physical terrain, then they're going to be in a virtual terrain only. And at that point, what we have to do is use intelligence services to be able to keep up with their attack leads and um, start developing you know, a plan within each country, Europe and otherwise, Okay, I guess I guess the lone wolf issue is something we could have explored, but didn't quite get time to. But Chris, thank you, sir. It's been uh, fascinating and informative, and thank you for all of the questions you had for Chris Sampson, lead researcher at Tapestry, co-author of Hacking ISIS. Uh, you can Google Chris Sampson um, and ISIS. Put that in there, and you'll be able to um, connect the two and see his work from there. Thank you for all your calls this evening. We're back tonight at ten o'clock.